Well, welcome to RUF, and welcome to large group. Um, at RUF, we like to say that you're never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you are beyond the need of that same grace. And so no matter where you find yourself this evening, you belong here. Why? Because no one in this room has arrived here alone. No one in this room has arrived here on their own either. And due to the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love, which I did steal from the children's storybook Bible. So I'm going to say it again now that you know that. And due to the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love of God that he shows us in Jesus, you are called here tonight. And so I want to thank you for being here. Thanks for coming. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedules with all the studying and, and tests. Literally, I know someone literally just came from a quiz that she's probably going through the answers in her head as we speak. And so I know that y'all are busy. Thank you for allowing RUF to be a place of refuge for you. Um, and so with it being a place of refuge, I want you to know that we lean on God's word um, so that we can grow into God's grace together. And so if you would, we're going to delve right in tonight. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me. If you, if you do not have a Bible, but you have a Bible at home, I encourage you to bring it. Um, I always heard from pastors, um, kind of in seminary, because I didn't grow up going to church, but I always heard from pastors, it's good to just have the physical word out. And here in RUF, I really want you to see that what I am teaching comes from the authoritative word of God. And it's not just David making this stuff up. Yes, by God's grace, I have been ordained, um, which means I've gone through a rigorous training to be able to do this. But I still want you to put your eyes on the very words of God and see that I'm not just, I'm not just saying things to say them. Um, and so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. Um, and we're going to be, I'm going to read them all again because the Beatitudes are meant to be read together. But we're going to focus on the last four, 7 through 12. Okay, we're going to focus on 7 through 12. So if you would, uh, open up your Bibles, turn in your app to Matthew chapter 5, verses 2 through 12. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord to his children. And he opened up his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be, call, be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, I pray that you would meet us in this room that these words are not just a word on a page, but it is the very life that sustains us. Lord, your word says that these words, that we feed on them. And so, Lord, would you feed our souls? Would you 
Open up our eyes that are blind, and would you give us ears to hear? It is only the power of your Spirit that can enable us to understand what you have written here. And so, Lord, I pray that you would invite us into your presence and that you would cast your Spirit upon us now. And, Lord, that you would uphold your promise that any time your word goes out, it never returns empty. Lord, would you allow that to be true this evening? We pray this in the strong and holy name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. In the year of 2035, so about a decade from now, humanoid robots were created to serve humanity with three basic laws. <laughs> Number one, a robot may not injure a human being or through an action allow a human being to come to harm. Number two, a robot must obey the orders given it by a human being except where such orders would conflict with the first law. Number three, a robot must protect its own existence as long as that protection does not con conflict with law number one or law number two. So the United States Robotics co-founder, uh, Dr. Lanning, um, he was either mysteriously thrown off uh, or he committed suicide and he died and he's the co-founder, right? So he's at the top of this building and they found his body. And so Detective Spooner, who we know as Will Smith, uh, begins to do some investigation work. Um, and as they're looking at the tapes and different things like that, they see that, that, the, that the tapes were corrupted. Uh, but they also see on the outside that nobody has come in or out. And so that, that struck Mr. Spinner and so Detective Spinner. And so he went into his office, come to find out there is Sonny in there and if you don't know who Sonny is he's a specially built NS5 robot with a higher grade material and a secondary processing system that allows him to feel emotion and to have dreams and it also allows him to not listen to those three laws that we just stated as the story develops they realize that these upgraded NS5 robots are destroy they're not only destroying the older robots and bringing in the new ones, at the same time, thousands and thousands of NS5 robots are flooding United States streets, right? And they're bringing um, martial law, so to speak. They're bringing a curfew and a lockdown and sending all the, the humans to their space. And D Detective Spooner uncovers something known as Vicky. And Vicky is the virtual interactive kinetic intelligence who is basically the AI mastermind behind all of these robots. And he finds out that she is the one who is ultimately pulling all the strings and leading us to this controlled environment. Spooner then confronts Vicky, and this is what she says in response to this confrontation. She says, she has determined that humans, if left unchecked, will eventually cause their own extinction and that her evolved interpretation of the three laws requires her to control humanity and, yes, sacrifice some people for the good of the entire race. You might be asking, what was the point of bringing up iRobot, this old movie now? Well, these humans, uh, these humans created robots with a purpose, right? They created them to serve humanity, to, to serve us based on their design and function and purpose which is all connected and in tandem with these three laws that allow the robots to ultimately flourish on their design. But of course, once the robots begin to ignore these three laws and advance in their processing on their own, guess what it leads to? It leads to chaos. 
It led to enslave. It, it, it led in, to enslaving the humans that they were supposed to serve. It led to controlling them and even eliminating some. Well, in a similar way, we too have a creator, right? God who reveals himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this Bible, who created us in his image, who created us very good. That's what the, in the beginning, it says that he created us very good with purpose and dignity and honor and authority and dominion over all the things that he created, over the things of the air, over the, over the things on the ground and, and the things in the water. He gave us dominion over all of those things. And he created us to flourish whenever we're in, aligned with his will. Whenever we're aligned with him defining what is good, he created us to flourish whenever we listen and whenever we take what is good that he's defined as good and we use it for those purposes. Of course, the Bible teaches us that humanity, Adam and Eve, our representatives, our covenant head, which is Adam, he was supposed to be the one who takes God's goodness and his word and he shares that with Eve and they live that out and they spread God's beauty to the ends of the earth. We know in Genesis chapter 3 that Adam and Eve rebelled against their creator. How did they do that? By taking of that fruit, they said, I will define what is good. I will define what is good and pleasing to the eye, and I will have independence from my creator. And guess what ensues? Chaos. Very similar to, right, the robots that were meant to serve humanity. What ultimately happens is sin comes into the world right? And sin ruptures all the relationships that we have, our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, our relationship with self, and our relationship, honestly, with this world. God created us as physical human beings. At the end of time, whenever Jesus comes back, he's restoring things. He's not, a, he's not doing away with them. And he's starting that restoration whenever Jesus comes in here as the Son of God. He's coming in and he's bringing a new kingdom, to begin the restorative work, to begin what we were supposed to do, to restart what we were supposed to do in the beginning as the second Adam. But if we're being honest, I don't think we truly believe that God loves us. I don't think we truly believe that God wants us to flourish. I think we fall into the same lie that Adam and Eve did, don't we? God doesn't want you to be happy. He's holding out on you. He knows that if you take of that tree, you're going to know something that you don't know now, right? It's that cunning voice in our heads that tells us that God doesn't really care about you. He's actually holding true joy away from you. That's why you have to take it and define it for yourself, like I did. The father of lies says to us, how might you be hearing this lie? Do you think that God is holding out on you? And if you do think that God is holding something for, from you why, do you, why do you think that? Do you think that God really doesn't want the best for you? And do you believe that God doesn't actually want you to flourish? Because what we have in the Beatitudes is God taking on flesh and defining what human flourishing looks like. I think whenever we first started, we looked at that question, what how do we attain it? What does human flourishing look like? That kind of question. And we've also established over the last few weeks that we all want to flourish, don't we? I don't think that's up for debate, right? I think if I literally had a one-on-one with each one of you and I said, do you want to flourish? You'd be like, yeah. 
Yes, I do. But you have to hold on because the things that Jesus says are counter-cultural. They're not what you'd expect. We're going to talk about that a little bit more here in a moment. But wherever you find yourself this evening, God is quite literally condescending is the language. It's, that's the word. I know that's a big word, but he's condescending. What that means is God is coming down to you. Christianity is the only religion, I've said this before, it's the only religion where God pours himself out, humbles himself by taking this stuff on, flesh, blood, physicality. He takes on this stuff and he enters into your darkness. He enters into your pain. He doesn't leave you. He doesn't start the clock. Some people are theists where they believe, okay, something had to create this, but he's gone. He's not personal. Well, the Bible begs to differ that we have a personal Savior that wants to be in relationship with you. And Jesus talks about that. God comes down through his son, Jesus, in order to show us how we attain human flourishing and what this ultimately looks like. And who else is more qualified than the creator and the designer? Who is more qualified than the one who has made you to be a certain way? To say, hey, I made you this way and I know what you need. All the things that you're seeking after, approval, acceptance, grades, a good job, so that you can feel a sense of identity and satisfaction and knowing the answers, feeling good about yourself, all of those things are a shadow. They're all a shadow pointing to the one in whom can only fulfill your deepest desire. Whatever that is, I want you to think about that. What is it really? What is your most deep desire? I know for me, as I, I want to be great. I want to be known for being smart and a good speaker, right, in my flesh. Whenever I'm not resting in my identity in Christ, I want the approval of man. I want you guys to leave here and be like, David rocks. <laughs> Dude changes my life every time I go in there, right? That, that feels great, right? I would be remiss not to say that I'm not tempted towards that too, okay? And so I want to say that even I am at the feet of Jesus, and I need the same things that you do. So as we, believe it or not, this is kind of crazy to say, but as we come to our conclusion of the Beatitudes, but don't forget, the Beatitudes are almost like, you know how I said it's like the thematic statement of a paper? Well, the Beatitudes are like a thematic statement that are about to be worked out in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. But we are coming to the conclusion of the Beatitudes this evening, and we're going to look at two things. Lord willing, we can finish. Number one, the call of the kingdom, and number two, the consequence of the kingdom. So number one, the call of the kingdom. Number two, the consequence of the kingdom. First, let's look at the kingdom's call. As Jesus weaves a tapestry, this beautiful tapestry of what it looks like to be a, a human who flourishes, it's important to take a step back and not look at the interweave, but look at the whole tapestry to see how everything fits together. So there's actually two subpoints. I don't do subpoints often, but God calls us upward and God calls us outward. So you notice how it's kingdom's call, God calls us upward, and then he calls us outward. So God calls us upward is going to be a little bit of starting with the first ones, right? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed human flourishing comes whenever we recognize that spiritually speaking, we're bankrupt, we're impoverished. Remember that, that word that, Paul, that, that, uh, that uh, Matthew uses here is the strongest possible word that he can use for impoverished 
We are spiritually bankrupt. There's nothing that we can do, say, think, or accomplish that will earn God's favor with us. Nothing. It is only by God's grace pursuing our heart we recognize our deep need for Jesus, which is ultimately eternal life. In fact, whenever there's the, the, the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, Jesus is the fulfillment of that tree. Whenever we partake of his body and blood, we are quite literally eating eternal life because he is the tree of life. Because he dies on a tree, doesn't he? You see it? It's all one story unified, and it all points and is fulfilled in Jesus. It's beautiful. Those who mourn, blessed are human flourishing, are those who mourn. That doesn't sound right. That seems countercultural. We should be looking for our best life now. We shouldn't be mourning about anything. We shouldn't be feeling. As God opens up our eyes to our sin and our spiritual need and our failure and our brokenness, we are driven. So we go in to see our need, and then we're driven out of ourselves so that we can mourn this reality. And that inevitably leads to being meek, right? Blessed human flourishing are those who are humble, that are meek, right? This logically goes through. We're driven into ourselves, recognizing our deep need. We're driven out of ourselves, mourning this reality. This will always lead to a deep-seated humility because we recognize that on our own, we're, we're not just sick. We're dead. In the beginning, whenever he said, if you eat off of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. He wasn't kidding What he meant is physical death will come over time, but spiritual death was there because he was separated from life. And that's why they were kicked out of the garden. Right? And then that leads to the fourth one, which was the one that we did last week, this hinge point, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. After being driven out of ourselves and upward toward God, showing and needing, we have a hunger for a right relationship both with God and with others. You notice how there's a fracture here and here, and that's exactly what God's after. He's after the reconciliation of this relationship and this relationship, this relationship, and this one. He wants to redeem, to restore, to bring anew all of the things that were lost because of the fall and because of sin. And then that leads me to, so God calls us upward and then he calls us outward, which is, which is now going into our focus tonight. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy it's important to notice when, when Jesus drives us inward in order to see and accept our spiritual depravity or our spiritual need, the ways that we don't bring anything to God, our weakness, our sin, he does this to actually pull us outward toward others. Said a little differently, when we humbly recognize the ways that we fall short of God's standard, his purpose, his design, if you will, as his beloved image bears, this actually enables us to move toward others in humility and patience and mercy. But that begs the question, what is mercy anyway and what does it look like? Well, I'm actually going to give a biblical illustration of what does mercy look like. It's actually the parable of the unforgiving servant. If you haven't read this, read this whenever you get home. It's Matthew chapter 18. In the same book, it's Matthew chapter 18 verses 21 through 35, but I'm going to try to sum it up. In this parable of the unforgiving uh, servant, Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a king who wishes to settle the accounts of two servants. And number one, this person owed, it says, 10,000 talents. Now you're going to be like, what does that mean? 10,000 talents? That's equivalent to $6 billion. Okay? So he owed $6 billion. This servant 
was going to have to sell everything that he owned, his wife, his children, and to become a slave because that's how you became a slave back then is because you were in such a big debt that you had to voluntarily put yourself in slavery in order to work off that debt. But he begged and pleaded his master for mercy. He begged and pleaded, and the master released him, and he forgave him of $6 billion. And that servant now goes out after being forgiven all this debt, and he goes to another servant who owes him money. He owes 100 denarii. Now you're going to say, well, what's a denarii? A denarii was one day's wages in this day, and so it's about equivalent to $12,000. billion, dollars and when that servant couldn't pay the other servant $12,000, he seized him, he choked him, he was violent. And when this servant begged and pleaded just like he did, he did not relent. In fact, he threw him in jail so that he could pay off his debt. And guess what happened whenever the master found out? He said, you wicked servant. I forgave you all of that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? What is the point? Our master God is the initiator and the provider of abundant grace and mercy to offer forgiveness of our sins through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. 1 Peter 2.24 says it really well. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin. This is repentance. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He's calling us into ourselves to be out of ourselves, to recognize our need. That's not going to fulfill it. That's, that's what that is. Now that we've tasted this mercy, this mercy that he bears our sins on his, in his body on a tree so that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. By Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, by those wounds, we receive healing. And whenever we taste that mercy, because it's mercy, grace is a free gift offered to you. You can't earn it. There's nothing that you can do. Well, salvation in Jesus is a free gift from God. It's grace and mercy. There's nothing that we can do to earn this. And whenever we taste this, this mercy calls us outward. And so a lot of people struggle with, a lot of people struggle with, well, I was saved by grace, you said, right? But the Bible has a lot of commands. It tells me to do a lot of things, but it always begins with God's divine initiative and his grace to enable you to live out your call, to live out your design, to live out and in community with other image bearers who are also meant to share his beauty to the ends of the world. He's not saying you have to lift yourselves up by your own bootstraps and figure this out on your own. He's saying, no, my son actually died for your forgiveness. He actually is taking that sin upon the cross upon himself and the wrath of God, God's justice is being completely satisfied on the cross. And that actually frees you. It frees you from yourself. And it frees you so that you can actually love other people. And you can be patient with them. And you can be merciful. Right? I want you to think about somebody in your head right now that you struggle to be patient with. Right? Who in your life have you not shown a lot of mercy to? Who might God be putting on your heart to pursue Honestly, in forgiveness and reconciliation. To be honest, I meet with a lot of college students, and I think each one of you, a lot of you, I'll say many of you have somebody like this. 
You have somebody in your life where it just ended bad. Who is that for you in your life? Who might God be placing on your heart to pursue in forgiveness and reconciliation? How does mercy manifest itself to someone who we think doesn't deserve it? I'm going to say that again. How does mercy manifest itself to someone who we think doesn't deserve it? Well, you know that's you, right? Because none of us deserve the mercy and grace that we're given as a free gift. That's what makes it a free gift is because you don't deserve it. That's the very thing that makes it grace. Grace is because you do not deserve it. There's nothing in us that makes us deserve it. No one could boast. We are all on the same playing field. Number two, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is important because the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, right? Blessed are those who have sorrow, not only over their sin, but the sins of others in the world. This is actually paired with purity, right? The disciple of Jesus who mourns their sin and others will long for a pure heart. Why? Because you see sin for what it is. You see it as a thief. You see it as the one who's trying to control you and your thoughts and get you away from God. It's trying to destroy you. And so it makes sense that, if you, that that one's paired with pure in heart. If you put them next to each other, those who mourn, it pairs with pure of heart. What does it mean to even be pure in heart? It's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of it's hard to think about that. What does it mean to be pure in heart? Let's start with what it doesn't mean. So I'm going to go Old Testament here, but follow with me. In the Old Testament, prophets called out when there was a disconnect between two things, between ritual observance of the law, right? Think of this as like the laws of sacrifice and circumcision. So there's a disconnect between obeying these laws and a true embrace of relationship and covenant with God that f- and obedience that comes from love. There's a disconnect between, right, the Old Testament Israelites were required to be circumcised in order to come into the family of God. It was a requirement. But God also told the Israelites to circumcise your heart too. So he's saying there's a disconnect between what you're doing externally and what your heart's doing internally. So that's what it doesn't mean. In Jesus' seven woes, the scribes and the Pharisees Uh, also picked up on this disconnect, also in what it doesn't mean. He says this, and later in Matthew 23, he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly you appear beautiful, but within you are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Yikes. Man, I don't want to be on the receiving end of that. Right? What is he saying? On the outside, you make yourself desirable and honorable, and you look great on the outside, and people give you praise for that. Well, that's what you're living for, because inside you're a dead man's bones. What is, so what does it not mean? What does it not mean to be pure in heart? It means that our inner moral disposition is disconnected to our external action, our behavior. There's a disconnect between what we believe to be true and how we're living it out, right? But Jesus is actually calling us into going inside to recognize our need, not to say figure it out. He's actually saying go inside to recognize your spiritual need that it's going to be ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And he's going to connect the internal and the external. Thus, what does it mean to be pure in heart then, right? It means this, you're single-minded. 
To be pure in heart means you're single-minded in the sense that your inner moral disposition and your external devotion is to Jesus, and they're connected. And James, he he warns people of being double-minded, right? And what he is saying is people who are double-minded that have multiple allegiances or loyalties are like waves in water. You're going to be tossed to and fro, and you're not going to have any foundation. Jesus says it this way. He says you cannot worship God and also mammon. He's saying you cannot worship God and you cannot worship money. You can't worship them both. You'll serve one and hate the other. You can't serve both. Number three, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Also, what's important is the third beatitude, those who are meek and humble, and this one, peacemaker, they form a pair. Can you imagine how, like, how beautiful God's word is that it all makes... It all comes together. The meek and the humble become those who are peacemakers. Why? Because meek and humble people recognize that they have no merit before God. True meekness, true humility before God is is saying, I don't have anything to offer you. Number two, meekness and humility, they don't assert or promote themselves, which means they don't demand certain privileges or recognition. So in my flesh... My flesh wants recognition. In Christ, I have it. In my flesh, I want to impress you. In Christ, I'm the apple of his eye. In my flesh, I work hard and anxiety is written on my heart because I want to be approved. But in Christ, the stamp of approval is already done. In the eyes of God, I'm his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. How is God leading us outward here? In Colossians 1.20, if you're studying the book of Colossians, you're going to come up to this. It says this, And through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is not saying that peace is absent of any conflict. But Jesus primarily is speaking about the peace that we have with God now. Because whenever we rebelled, there was a dispeace. There was a disconnect. There was a fracture. There was brokenness. What Jesus is saying is that we now have peace with God because of Jesus. And that leads to the kingdom consequence, which I'm going to end quickly. So, but that doesn't make sense, right? This, the, the verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice that it starts with kingdom of heaven as the reward, and it ends with kingdom of heaven, showing that all of that stuff goes together. But this is the climax of the Beatitudes. This is where if I'm poor in spirit, I recognize my need, I mourn my sin and other sin, I live a meek and a humble life, longing for God's righteousness, I'm merciful to others, purity in heart, right, seeking peace. This is where it gets you? <laughs> it gets you persecution? Yes. Yes, it does. Because that's what Jesus received. Jesus was the human par excellence, the perfect human. And he received persecution. And Jesus says in John chapter 15, he says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If the world hates you, keep in mind that the world hated me first. 
And just to know, by the way, as we're seeking to get the approval of others, Jesus was a perfect person and he received disapproval. What does that say? I think we're looking for the wrong people's or person's approval. Jesus is saying that human flourishing is when disciples are persecuted because their loyalty, allegiance, and faith in him. He is not saying that human flourishing is for any type of persecution. He's saying specifically persecution, which is for righteousness sake. Because of something you've had to give up in order to follow me. So says human flourishing is you receiving persecution, ridicule, slander of your character in your name because you believe that Jesus is the Christ, that you believe he's the Messiah, that you believe he is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament, that you believe that Jesus is quite literally God in the flesh, condescending, coming down to our world in order to pay the price upon himself for what sin has done to all of our relationships with God, ourselves, with others in the world. If we receive persecution or slander or revilement because of this, that's where human flourishing lies. Have you ever been disillusioned by a Christianity that says when you believe that you're too blessed to be stressed? Have you ever experienced opposition or unfair treatment or even character assassination because of what you believe? Did you know that what Jesus actually teaches is faith in him and citizenship in his kingdom will result in this type of persecution? That he pierces this world, he reveals the kingdom and the king, and he says, if you follow me, you're going to receive persecution. This is not a health and wealth gospel. The true word of God does not say if you believe there's blessings are coming for you, right? Now you have to hold that intention because it's not either or, it's both and, right? And then you have to redefine what blessing is in human flourishing, right? Because wisdom literature says that yes, blessed are those who live in accord with God's word as a general principle. But we can't say just because we believe we're going to flourish in everything that we do. The conclusion is this, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets before you. Jesus is appealing to your greatest longings as he comes onto the stage of history. Jesus became poor so that you may be rich in his kingdom. Jesus mourned sin to the point of death on a cross so that we would receive comfort ultimately in him. Jesus pours himself out to humanity in the most humble way possible as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, as the creator of all things who speaks and things happen. He poured himself out in humility so that we may inherit the earth. Jesus hungered and thirsted for righteousness whenever we do not hunger and thirst for righteousness so that we will ultimately be satisfied in his completed work on the cross for our sin. That is where true satisfaction is found. Jesus is merciful to provide what we actually need in order to receive mercy for our sin, rebellion, and even our hatred toward God. Jesus remained completely committed to the Father and obeyed him to the point of death, even death on a cursed cross. He was innocent. It was unjust. He didn't do anything to be killed, especially be killed in this way. Why? In order that we may be called sons and daughters of God so that we may see him. Jesus made peace through his sacrificial atonement so that we may be called the beloved. 
Jesus, an innocent man, unjustly killed for righteousness sake, so that we may receive the kingdom by repenting, which means we're turning away from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light in which he brought, by which he initiates through grace, by which he calls you up and into, and then he calls you outward to share. Human flourishing is only possible by following the king who took on flesh to define what human flourishing actually is. Jesus, yes, the God-man, is the only one who has the right to define what human flourishing is. To be honest, you don't, unless you thank your God. And this creator took on flesh to not only show us, but to die, to be resurrected from death, to send his spirit to give us a new heart because we're in a new kingdom. And he's calling us to be a new people. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And thank you for the ways that his life is not merely an example or a good word or a a wonderful sage or philosopher or teacher, but he is quite literally the second person of the Trinity, God in flesh, to live the life that we could not, to die the death that we ultimately deserve so that we'll never have to face separation from you but to be resurrected to prove that this kingdom is real, that it's not false, that there is one who is raised from the dead. He's the firstborn of many. Lord, thank you for not only hope right now, but thank you for an eternal hope of rest in you. Father, we pray this in the strong and holy name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, music team.